Bond. James Bond is a man who is often in desperate situations. And every year, every few years rather, we line up and we pay 15 bucks to watch him, you know, get out of these desperate situations with a quick wit and an even quicker trigger. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, we all had different experiences. If you've grown up, he's, he's, James Bond has been in movies like forever, right? Like since they started making them almost. And, and so we all have a different, when I say James Bond, you immediately have a, a face in mind. And, and I'm curious which one of these guys it is. So Sean Connery might be your Bond or, or um, Roger Moore or George Lazenby or Timothy Dalton or uh, Pierce Brosnan or even Daniel Craig, the most recent one. I am kind of curious who your Bond is. Like when I say that, who you think of. So you can, I want you to share that with someone around you. Online people, you can type it in the chat. Uh, please don't say George Lazenby, that's just the wrong answer. But other than that, <laughs> go, who's your Bond? I don't know about you, but I love a good spy story. I, I, I really dig like Mission Impossible and James Bond movies. I, that's just cool for me. In fact, I thought it'd be really cool to start this message by rappelling in from the beams or something. <laughs> and then I remembered, I'm not crazy. Um, and the future of the free world is not at stake here, you know. Uh, I, I want to talk to you today about the original 007. His name's not James Bond. His name is Ehud. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. We're starting a new series, as Kyle mentioned today, called Desperate Times, Desperate Men. Over 100 years ago, there was a preacher named Andrew Blackwood, great preacher, uh, in the early 1900s, and he calls these kinds of sermons biographical sermons. We're going to just lean into th this person. So today we're talking about Ehud. Uh, next week we're going to talk about Gideon. And the week after that we're going to talk about Samson. So you're going to get three different voices this, uh, in this series because um, we really thought that we'd be looking at heading to Joplin like in a couple weeks for a grandbaby. But it came early. Christmas came early this year. So... Um, we're excited. Uh, just found out this last night was Emma's first night home with little baby Wesley. Uh, Deb FaceTimed with her this morning, and her summary was, all is well and cute. Um, so they're, they're doing good. But he was in the, is in the NICU all week, so we didn't get to see him. So we're going back to Joplin uh, this week. At some point, we'll figure that out later this afternoon. But uh, we're, we're eager to do that. And I'm grateful that uh, Nick and Fred, respectively, can fill in over the next couple weeks uh, while, while we have some time to just enjoy being grandparents. Um, we're we're going to look, at, though, at these three guys, Ehud and Gideon and Samson. And, and what we find in, these, um, in this book of Judges is that th their lives teach us that when times are desperate, we need to be desperate for God's power and his presence in our life. That when times in your life feel desperate, you need to be more desperate for God's power and presence. 
Now, in order for you to understand why these times were desperate for Israel, you need to understand that the book of Judges basically uh, articulates a repeating cycle. There's this cycle that happens through the book of Judges. And let, let, me, let me look at this. So they have success, right? Under Joshua, they, they mostly conquer the land. Not all of it, but most of it. They conquer the land. There's this time of success, right? Everything's going great, right? Which leads to complacency. They get lazy. Everything's fine, and they get lazy spiritually. And that laziness then leads them into sin. They begin to worship the gods of the nations they kicked out. They begin to do things that God's law says are wrong. So God sends a foreign power in to, uh, to oppress his people, to get their attention, to wake them up. And this, this political and, and oftentimes physical oppression, they press them into slavery again, leads them to cry out for deliverance in supplication, to ask God, save us, <laughs> send a rescuer. And so he does. He sends a judge. Now, don't, don't think of like, you know, old person in a long black robe. Think like uh, 007, right? Someone's going to swoop in and save the day. And, and, that, and that kind of, they're, they're exercising God's judgment on this pagan nation that is oppressing Israel. Which, yay, everything's great. Uh, maybe we just go hang out with that Ashtoreth festival. And it starts all over again. And Judges chapter 2 lays out this, this, this storyline. And it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking that this happens over and over and over again. In fact, when you, when you read, it's kind of hard to tell like, how much of this overlaps. Like, are there, how much of these cycles is it happening at the same time or in successive times? It could be as few as like five times. It could be like, a, like 10. It's just, there's a, it happens over and over and over again for Israel. And they have, people are desperate. And in the midst of all that desperation, God raises up a judge to deliver them. And we're going to look at, not the first of those, but the first kind of major one in the story of Ehud today. Look with me at Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we're not picking up on the first cycle. This is at least the second one, all right? And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Moab is the country to Israel's southeast, so it's on the southeast side of the Dead Sea. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. I'm just curious. How many of you are left-handed? Raise your left hand. Okay, this preacher count, so it's probably too high. 25-ish. Some, some people watching online, you can type me in the chat with your left hand. Um, if, if, you're, if you're a lefty, you know, again, not many, right? In a group of, I don't know, a couple hundred people, there's maybe 25 people in here left-handed. It was even more rare in Israel's time. Now, you might go, that's a weird thing to mention. It's very important later. Okay, we're going to get to that. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute. This is money they're being forced. It's like protection money. Like, if you pay us and we won't kill you. With tribute um, to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. Some of you are like, what in the world is a cubit? You came in here with two of them. You know that? You brought two cubits with you, assuming you have both arms. Right. 
the, the cubit is the length from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow. And it was kind of a standard unit of measurement. So it's roughly 18 inches. A cubit is roughly 18 inches, right? So he makes this sword. So big knife, small sword. Where I grew up, they call it an Arkansas toothpick, all right? So it's about 18 inches long, all right? Double-edged, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing, right? He's left-handed, so where's he going to put his weapon? Well, he's going to be able to draw it across the body, right? So it's right thigh. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. I'm just reading it. <laughs> After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, and I don't know if these idols, not totally sure. I wonder if Ehud sees these idols and he's just kind of had it. Like, I'm just, I'm done. I don't know. He himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him. Now, you're like, how in the world did he get in there? With, like, how, how, why, why would they leave? He's from the country they're oppressing. Nobody trusts this guy. How is he allowed to do that? He's a lefty. So when he goes into the king's presence, what do they do? They pat him down. Nothing there. He's not armed. Going in. It's on the other leg. Right? He draws this way. James Bond, right? 007 stuff, right? Hidden weapon, right? It's like the gun in the shoe or something. Anyway, he goes in. I have, a, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. This is the favorite passage of all junior high boys. They love this one. If you ever get tapped to teach a lesson to junior high boys at the last minute... Judges 3, there you go, you're good. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. I'm just reading the text. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. This is like James Bond stuff, right? He locks the doors, he goes out the window. He's in this upper room, right? There's probably columns and stuff. Goes out the window, climbs down the side of the wall. Dun, 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 dun. I know that's Mission Impossible, but... I didn't want to get the James Bond theme wrong. Anyway, so after he'd gone, the servants come and find the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. When he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. So he'd gone north a fair bit. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, and they allowed no one to cross over. This is probably the ford nearest Jericho. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Israel, or that day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Here's what I want you to get out of this, okay? Here's, here's the big idea this morning. In the midst of our most desperate situations, God is at work to bring us closer to him. I, this is really, we're kind of pulling the camera lens back a little bit, but you need to understand when your life is desperate, you, you need to believe, you need to trust that God is at work to bring you closer to him. 
Even when you can't really perceive what he's doing, he is working to bring you closer to him. Now, I want to explain this text. I want to go into a little more detail because there's some great stuff for us here. But before we do, there's an interpretive issue that we need to deal with. There's something here in the text that can cause difficulty for Christians in the 21st century that we really do need to talk about. You see, part of my job is not just to teach you what the Bible says, but also to teach you how to understand it better, okay? And there's, here's the principle I want to lay in front of you this morning. Just because the Bible records something as having happened doesn't mean that God approves of everything that happened. Just because the Bible records something as having happened doesn't mean that God's okay with it. And just because these people who are lionized, right, in, in Hebrews 11, right, the great ch- faith chapter, and they're talking about, oh, they did all these great things, doesn't mean God is cool with everything they did. I mean, if we were to go around the room, we don't have time to do this today, we'd be here until tomorrow. But if we were to go around the room and I were to say to you, name somebody in the Bible that messed up and God still used them, we'd be here a long time. Because it reads like a who's 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 list of the Bible, right? Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Peter, James, John, Mark, Paul. You get the idea. Just go through, it's just over and over and over again. We see that, that, you know, people messed up and God still used them. Now, here's why you need to understand that principle. We constantly interact with a world that thinks that this book is hopelessly out of date, and it's full of of contradictions and mixed up, messed up things. It's not true. Because they're imposing, they're importing their own understanding of right and wrong onto the book rather than understanding God for who he is. Let me restate the principle. Just because the Bible records something doesn't mean God is okay with it. And just because God makes a law to regulate something doesn't mean he approves of it. Exhibit A would be slavery. God does not like that. That's not good. That that demeans the image of God in another person. But it was a reality in the world that Israel was in, and so God made a law to regulate it. Listen, and here's something else. Just because you, finite, limited human being that you are, don't understand God's motives for, or his plan does not mean that he doesn't make sense or that he's inconsistent. There's a humility that we have to bring to this. He's God, we're not. And he does things on an infinite level. We just, our brains are finite, we're limited. We, I don't know. Having said that, I, I think it's important to admit that this, how do you apply this passage directly? Like, seriously, how do you apply this? How do you apply Judges 3 to your life? Because I'm pretty sure that the application that, 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 that we, we're not supposed to get, I'm, in fact, I'm certain that what God does not want you to get out of this text is make a sword and kill a fat guy. Please don't do that. That is bad, okay? Just so we're all on the same page. We can all agree that's bad. Instead of what I think we're supposed to see here is even in the most desperate situations, God is working to bring us closer to him. So how does that play out in the text? Well, there are some tensions here. There are tensions. Tension can be a very good thing. Tension is what makes your car go, right? You've got a timing belt in your car. With not, not enough tension, and they just spin. It doesn't go anywhere. Too much tension, snap. You don't go anywhere, right? So you, tension makes things move. It's, it's, you know, I'm not talking about that awkward conversation you had at Thanksgiving around your table. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying there are, some, there are some things we need to hold in tension, and there are three of them here in the text. 
Here's the first one. There's a tension between man and method. A tension between man and method. You've got to realize God chose Ehud. He did not choose his method. The text never says that God commanded Ehud to murder Eglon in cold blood. In fact, the silence of God on that particular point is deafening. Ehud claims to have a message from God. Nowhere does God actually speak to him in the text. We don't know what God said when he called Ehud into his service. And there's a big contrast here between Eglon, who's depicted as fat and stupid, and Ehud, who is depicted as a man of action, who's very clever, kind of the original 007, right? But what you need to realize is that the book of Judges functions as a, as a polemic, as an attack on the gods of the nations around Israel. And here's the point of that. There's a subtext there. The subtext is this. The, the point, oh yeah, those Moabites, they're fat and stupid. Yeah, and they beat you, Israel. There's this idea here where we go, oh yeah, the God, you know, we're going to whoop them eventually. Okay, yeah, but they still beat you because you abandoned the covenant. And, and you walked away from your relationship with God. And sometimes, church, I, it blows me away that we're like, I don't get why all this hardship is happening to me. And it's like, you walked away from your relationship with God. You don't get to be surprised that bad things happen when you do that. In this text, we have this tension between God raising up a man for this purpose and the guy goes off the rails, as far as we can tell, in his methodology. There's a tension between man and method. There's a, there's a Peanuts comic strip where Sally is, is, says to Linus, she goes, I think I'd be a good evangelist. And he says, why do you think that? And she said, well, I converted the kid in my class next to me to my religion. And Linus said, wow, how'd you do that? And she said, I beat him over the head with my lunchbox till he converted. <laughs> I, I don't think that's... That's what the, God wants here, Lucy. Which kind of raises the issue, you know, should Christians be involved in an armed response to evil? The church has been debating this almost its entire existence. You know, is this, is this okay? What's, where, and, and the church fathers debated this round and round and round. How do you respond? Is, can, a, can war ever be just? And, and is, what Eglon, is what Ehud rather did here right? I, I would argue it's just as morally gray as Dietrich Bonhoeffer's attempt to assassinate Hitler. You know this, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship, Lutheran pastor, just trying to call the church back. They opposed, he opposed Hitler and what Hitler was doing and was part of a plot to assassinate him. He was executed for it. <laughs> well, like, is that the right thing to do? I don't know. I, I struggle to, to say yes on that. I don't think so. And here's why. I think God makes a distinction between murder and warfare. Because in the Ten Commandments, God said, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit murder. And then he commands his people a couple hundred years later, go into that land where the Canaanites are and totally annihilate them. That's, that's what the word says. It's the Hebrew word haram, to completely obliterate how can that happen? Well, God makes a distinction between murder and warfare. What we see in the text is murder. It's 007. He literally has a license to kill. That's what's happening here. God uses it, but there's this tension between man and method. God raises up the man. I don't know that he approves of the method. And I don't think you can use this text as a justification for an armed and violent response against those 
who would persecute and oppress Christians. I think soldiers in war, police in enforcing civil order, that's a different animal. But looking at this as, can we just use force to, to you know, go, against, go up against bad guys? You got, a, you got a steep uphill road with people like, I don't know, Jesus and Paul. Because Jesus in Matthew 26, 52 and Paul in Ephesians 6, 17 make it clear that Christians are not to live by the sword but by the word of God. God chose Ehud to be Israel's deliverer. He did not sanction his methodology. And the good news is that God can still use us even when we're not perfect. I've told you before, I'm going to tell you again, you might eventually get sick of hearing this, but I don't care because it's the truth. At Chapel Rock, it's okay to be not okay. It's okay to come in here and not be okay. It is not okay to stay that way. God does not want you to just wallow in brokenness forever. (laughs) He wants you to be whole. He wants you to be healed. So, so God can still use you, even if you're messed up, but we need to understand there's a tension here between the man and the method. God sanctioned the man, not the method. There's another tension in the text, and it's the tension between character and call. I said before that the silence of God on, on you know, Eglon, or Ehud murdering Eglon is deafening, and I meant it. I'm not sure that he's a super praiseworthy character. You're going to see this in some of the other judges that we talk about. Not exactly like the person you really want to be a whole lot like. The narrator of the story, and we don't know who it is that wrote Judges, uh, could have been a series of people and these are collected stories. Again, it happens over several hundred years. There's, there's no hint of any kind that before verse 28 that Ehud's really spiritually sensitive. He, he might be upset by the, the gods that he sees at Gilgal. Maybe, we don't know. We're reading into the text at that point. But we know that God called him. He raised him up. The text specifically says he raised him up for this purpose. So what do we do with this? Maybe you've heard the the old saying, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. I I think there's some truth there. And I want to be really clear about this. I'm not saying that God doesn't care about character. He absolutely does. In fact, I think what God wants is both, right? He wants quality and he wants character. It's both. But in this text, we see this tension. You, You need to understand that our God is so awesome, he can craft beautiful things with imperfect tools, I remember in the pandemic, stuck at home, some of you, you know, I don't know what you were watching on YouTube, I was frustrated by the whole thing. By nature, I'm a fixer, and I couldn't do anything to change the situation, and it drove me bonkers. So I just wanted to watch someone make something or fix something. So I watched a lot of videos on YouTube of guys building stuff in their wood shop. And one of the things that was so amazing to me was some of these guys, you know, in, in, in America and places around the world, I don't know where they were, but they're using like old jinky drill presses from when my grandpa was a kid, you know, and it barely runs, and they're using a table saw with a rip fence that is like homemade, like they made the mechanism for the gear out of plywood, you know, and I'm watching these guys, and they're creating beautiful things, and I'm going, I would, I would sell that at a garage sale to fund the new thing at Home Depot. Like, I would not use that, I just wouldn't use the tool, I'd give it away or something, I'm not gonna... And they use old, messed up stuff to create something beautiful. My dad has a saying. He said, our God is so awesome, he can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And I think he did in, this, in Judges 3. <laughs> I heard about a guy that applied for a job as a handyman. His, resp- his prospective employer called him in for an interview. And he said, uh, so could you do carpentry? And the guy goes, no. Oh, 
Um, well, how about plumbing? The guy's like, no, not really, not good. And he said, well, can you do electrical work? And he goes, well, not safely. Um, and he said, well, then what's so handy about you? And he said, I just live around the corner. <laughs> Sometimes the greatest ability we have is our availability to be within range when God calls, to respond like Samuel. Remember Samuel? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. To respond like Isaiah. Here I am. Send me. That's the tension between character and call. You might not have it all together yet, but if God calls you, you better say yes. And so many times I think we offer up excuses and we say, God, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. I don't know what to do. Ah, and God says, I picked you. Come. Come on. Okay. You may not have your act together yet. God still wants to work in your life to bring glory to his name. You don't have to have it all sorted out. That's okay. Are you listening? I think this is what's happening down in Kentucky. I think people are desperate for God's presence. This revival that's happening at Asbury, it's not the only place. It's happening in other places. And I think this desperation is, is rising up in people and they're just, I just want to hear God's call. I just want to be ready to respond when God calls my name into his service. See, the easy application here in the text is to make this connection between Ehud's uh, sword and the word of God. Like, oh, if you want to assassinate a specific sin in your life, you need to memorize the word of God. And yes, you should do that, but that's spiritualizing the text. That's not really dealing with it. I think there's a deeper application here. If you're going to invoke the name of the Lord on your life, your methods have to match the message. See, we've said that on Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. And I don't know about you, but I grew up being taught that that means you better not say, oh my God, or you're in big trouble. And you shouldn't. Just to be clear, you shouldn't do that. But I don't think that's what specifically that commandment is about. Because I think to take the name of the Lord in vain means to call yourself one of his own and not act like it. That's a far worse offense in God's eyes. To call yourself a Christian and not live like Jesus is taking the Lord's name in vain. To call yourself a disciple and not be involved in disciple stuff is to take the Lord's name in vain. Do not think that because God calls you, character doesn't matter. He'd rather have both. We've got to make sure that our methods always match the character of God, not our own preferences, which could cause us to get uncomfortable occasionally. There's one more tension here. I think it's probably the most important. The third tension is the tension between redemption and result. Now, the biblical definition of the word redeem is to buy back something that rightfully belongs to you. In the text, God has a plan for Israel that he's moving forward. It doesn't always go in the straightest path. Daniel Block, in his commentary on Judges, puts it this way. Minimally, Yahweh's defeat of Moab under Ehud's leadership resulted in a peace for Israel for almost a century. This enabled the nation to consolidate its hold on the land of Canaan, but it also offered them another opportunity to turn to Yahweh with undivided attention. But subsequent narratives will demonstrate how miserably they failed in this. 
there's this cycle that happens, right? The people, they, they, they have some success, they get complacent, they fall into sin, they're oppressed by, because of that, they, they, they cry out to God for rescue and he sends the deliverer, he sends a savior to rescue them and it happens again. But if, if they could break that cycle, if they could understand and appreciate what God has done, that he has redeemed them, that he bought them back, He brought them out of slavery and he gave them this land and if they could just wrap their head around that, that cycle might have been broken. God doesn't seem to have a whole lot of optimism that his people will break out of that though. Moses told them it would happen hundreds of years prior to this. Now I can't say for certain if God was pleased with the ultimate results of Ehud's choices. I I, I don't know. Um, I'm inclined to think probably not. God is able to use them though immoral though they might have been, to move his plan for redemption forward. W.A. Criswell, a famous Baptist preacher, made an observation one time. He said, if you were to turn yourself into a bird and follow the course of the Mississippi River from its north, from its, the headwaters up north near Canada, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, he said, you would, which way does the Mississippi flow, y'all? Most of the time, yes. Sometimes it flows east. Sometimes it flows west. In a few key places, it actually flows back north. As it rounds a... If you were to follow the, the middle line, the center line of the Mississippi, from its headwaters up near Canada all the way, sometimes you're, mostly you're flying south, but occasionally east, occasionally west, and very occasionally even back north again. And his point is that sometimes God's plan works that way. He is always working for redemption. But because he's relying on broken, fallible tools, sometimes the results aren't exactly what he would prefer. And then he works that to his own glory. That's how amazing God is. That's what he can do. See, Ehud and really the rest of the nation of Israel were more interested, I think, in the immediate results of, of, than they were the ultimate goal of having a covenant relationship with God. They just wanted to get rid of Moab for a while. Like, hey, we, this is not good. And so many times I think we're, we're more interested in immediate short-term results than we are our own redemption. <laughs> Becoming like God. These people were looking for a physical solution to a spiritual problem. And I think that that's an appropriate question for us to ask and to wrestle with this morning. Are you looking in your life for a physical solution to a spiritual problem? I fully recognize that some of you might have come in here today and you're absolutely doing this. I've been there. I've done it. It doesn't work. Maybe you come in and your mind is just not in the right spot and you know your mind's not in the right spot and so you'll, you'll, you'll take a pill or drink a drink. This, you, you think that the solution is somehow in a bottle, maybe a little orange one or a big brown one or a big clear one. And you'll take a pill because you know that something in your head isn't right. And by the way, I'm being very clear here, I'm not talking about clinical depression. That's a medical issue. You need to see your doctor. If there's a chemical imbalance in your brain, that's different. But if you came in here depressed or sad and you think you can fix that with something in a bottle, I want to tell you, you're wrong. You're looking for a physical solution to a spiritual problem. Or, or, or maybe you, you have a sense of a lack of intimacy in your life and so you're, you, you try to fill that with, with, with pornography or with, with sexual infidelity and you just think, I just want to feel close to somebody once. And what your heart really wants is a relationship with God. 
Or maybe that there's a hunger in you that you can't seem to satisfy, but you're going to try everything on the buffet. See if it works. And so binge eating and binge drinking becomes a thing for you, and you're looking for a physical solution to a spiritual problem. Or maybe it's a sense of trust. Trust that there will be enough. Trusting God to provide. And so just work, 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 work. And you got 19 different side hustles. Because it's like, I can't, I, I just can't trust God. And you're looking for a physical solution to a spiritual problem. <laughs> or maybe you think, you know what? If we could just get the right people in power. If we could just get the right people in power, then our country would be the way it's supposed to be. And by the way, please understand, I am not pointing at either side. I'm pointing at both sides on that issue. They both do it. We could just elect the right people. Then, then our problems will go away. Physical solution, spiritual problem. What does our country need? Revival. It needs Jesus. It's not going to come at the ballot box, y'all. <laughs> Not the ultimate fix. That might improve a thing or two occasionally. We need the Lord. Listen, don't, don't be looking for a, a physical solution to a spiritual problem. Here's, here's what I want to tell you. Listen, when you try to force God's hand at something, you're out of balance and you're not maintaining the tension between redemption and results. Occasionally the results don't go the way we'd like. Okay, God's ultimate plan is redemption. See, when everything is said and done, what do, we, what do we do with this? Like I said before, the application is not make a sword and kill a fat guy, right? That's not what God wants you to get out of this. I'm sure that the author of Judges only intended to communicate the idea that, that Ehud was a man that God used to rescue Israel when they were in a desperate situation. That's it. That's as far as the author meant to go. But for us, I think there's a deeper application. I want to draw your attention back to Judges 3.15. Look at this. Look at this passage, Judges chapter 3, verse 15. It says, again, the Israelites called out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. You see that word? The word translated deliverer is the Hebrew word Mosheya. It shares a root with the word Yeshua, the name of Jesus in Hebrew. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word in Judges 3.15 that Luke uses in Luke 2.11 when the angel says to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. A deliverer. Ehud was a type of deliverer. He was a type of savior, but as we've seen, he wasn't enough. He could deliver the people through cleverness and military excellence, but he couldn't change their hearts. And I think what God wanted maybe was not this murder in a, in a quiet room, but what he wanted was ultimately what happened for the people to rally and insist that God's name be glorified in the land he gave them. Sometimes what we tell God we need is not really what we need. Israel didn't need political salvation as much as they needed a new heart. And if they would have turned their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength back to God, he would have brought about that revival. He would have brought about that renewal. He would have guaranteed them the safety and security that he promised. Maybe there's somebody here today who's doing the same thing. Looking for a physical solution to a spiritual problem. Can I urge you today to repent from that? Can I ask you, I mean, can I just get tough with you for a second and say, listen, if that's what you're doing, acknowledge it, realize that that's not gonna be the solution God wants for you. <laughs> and you need to become desperate for him. 
You need to become desperate for his power and his presence. And we are seeing this happen all over the world right now. He will come. He will respond to that desperation. You understand, that's our big idea today. In the midst of our desperation, God is at work to bring us closer to him. And the place where he did this best is on the cross of Jesus. He delivered us, not by military power, but but, but using a method that Paul talks about in Colossians chapter two. I don't know that we've done this before, but we're gonna read scripture together to close the message. Would you stand with me? Because what I want to do is read this passage as we close out today, but I've personalized it. I changed the pronouns. I believe God's okay with that. To make this personal to you and to me. Let's read this out loud together from Colossians chapter 2. When I was dead in my sins and the uncircumcision of my flesh, God made me alive with Christ. He forgave all my sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against me and condemned me, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the text, Ehud had a temporary victory. He he earned it with a sword. In our lives, Jesus has made a permanent victory and he gained it with three nails and a spear. He wants to deliver you and he's asking you today to be desperate for him. Maybe you're in a desperate situation this morning and need godly counsel, need someone to come alongside you. Our next step room is open. We'll have one of our leaders in there under the yellow awning. If you just need to talk with somebody, if you have questions about what we talked about today, we'd love for you to make yourself, that's available to you. We'd love for you to take advantage of that. Maybe you're just in a desperate situation and need some, your brothers and sisters to come alongside you in prayer. We'd love for you to come forward and, and have the opportunity to pray with you. And maybe today you're really ready to surrender your life to Jesus. You've been trying and trying and trying, using physical solutions to spiritual problems. And I'm going to tell you today, the only one who can fix it is him. And you've got to hand your life over to him. And want, you want to come forward and name him as Savior and Lord and be baptized. We're going to sing together and you respond as God leads you today. Let's sing.